Hello, welcome to MikeyPod Podcast, episode 291 for April 25th, 2020. Today's guest is everyone's favorite ex-non-gender queer cat-loving nerd nurse comic Kelly Dunham, and I'm your host, Michael Heron. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a composer, pianist, electronic musician, storyteller, and activist based in New York City. On this podcast, I have conversations with fellow creators who use their creativity to change the world. I've been sending this podcast to your ears for 14 years plus. If you'd like what you hear, subscribe using the colorful buttons in the sidebar and footer at MikeyPod.com or just search MikeyPod in your favorite podcast directory. If you'd like to know more about me, stop by my website at MichaelHeron.com, hit me up on social media everywhere as at MichaelHeron, or email MikeyPod at gmail.com. Hello. So I think everything's fixed. I was having some audio issues as I was recording earlier. So if you hear weird crackling, should be gone now. But um, I apologize if you hear it. Hey, welcome. It's week six. We just finished week six of New York City schools being closed, which is what I sort of consider the beginning of lockdown slash shelter in place slash pause, as Governor Cuomo likes to call it. Um, Coronavirus 2020. Here we are. Um, Worldwide pandemic. If you're listening to this from the future, you are listening to something that was recorded during a worldwide pandemic. Isn't that weird? Say it with me. Worldwide pandemic. Yeah, it's really happening. That's what's really happening right now. (sighs) Last episode, I think I was freaking out and then I just shut down emotionally for a few weeks. (laughs) Now I'm back. Um, It's been challenging, Um, as I'm sure it has been for you. Like every it's. Everyone who could possibly be listening to this right now is affected by the coronavirus in some way, even if you're listening to it from the future and you know how it all panned out. Wow. Whoa. That's, I guess, what I love about podcasting. Um, My coping things have been as follows, because you asked, meditating every morning. It's been today was my 18th day of meditating for 10 minutes. I'm using the Headspace app. If you're using it, too, will you let me know? I'd love to be your buddy on there. Um, It's great. And my friend Kevin, I have to thank for giving me a year subscription to it. So I get I can get access to all the bonus stuff. And I'm using one on transforming anger. Discovered that I have a lot of anger about being in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Hmm. It's there's a lot. There's a lot of there's a lot. It's really hard to yeah. You know. You know. You're doing it too. Um but I like making stuff and I've been slowly but surely the meditation and I'm writing every morning um has been helping me to sort of shift things. Can you hear that? Oh, it's one o'clock, so there was only one church bell. Did you hear it? There's church there's a church right right on the corner for me. Um I've been really appreciating the world, weirdly, um, I feel frustrated and, you know, a lot emotionally about what's going on, but it has given me a time to stop for a minute for a lot of ways. Uh, so anyway, here's a podcast, Kelly Dunham, great conversation. I do have to say this pod, this interview is pretty old. As you've noticed, if you're a regular listener, I haven't been so, uh, consistent, well, I don't know that I've ever been really consistent with this podcast, which is okay, but less than usual. And I feel especially bad about it because I have some interviews um, that have been sitting here just kind of getting dusty and they're great. Um, it's weird kind of putting these up. This interview I think I did in January, um, which was well before what's happening now. Uh, so if it sounds a little, I haven't listened to it yet. I'm about to edit it. If it sounds a little uh, tone deaf or 
surprising, just know that I recorded it several months ago. Um, it's a great interview, and you should really check out um, Kelly's album, Not the Gym Teacher, which is now out, I think, in the podcast. <laughs> We're talking about it coming out later. Um, but I'm just going with it. One of the things I want to do with this podcast is go back to what I used to do, which was just make a podcast. And I hadn't, you know, I have a lot of rules in my mind about what this is supposed to be and what's the right way to do this and that. Ah, let's let that go. Right? Like, this is about being creative and making a thing. Um, it's not going to affect my listenership, which has been on the decline, you know, since I started making rules. And there's so many podcasts now that are these highly polished things. I'm in a a podcast community on Facebook, and everyone's trying to make their podcasts like sound like these polished NPR things. Uh, I'm good with not doing that, and I actually appreciate things that are not that way. So I'm going to go ahead and embrace that. So here's a really casual <laughs> check-in for you. Um, I've got some music for you from my friend Hannah, who lives about a block away from me. <laughs> uh, we talked together. It's called Long, so we don't need to get into all that. But lovely human being. Um, and she has a new project. This is The group is called Human Natural. It's a duo. And this is a track from their brand new album. Uh, the track is called Trampoline. And after we listen to this, we'll check in with uh, Kelly Dunham. Love it always 
I'd like to welcome to the show everyone's favorite ex-nun, genderqueer, cat-loving, nerd nurse, comic, Kelly Dunham. Hello, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I love that intro, and I have to say that I stole it from, I mean, I guess it's not stealing if it's in your bio, but it's so good. It, like, sums up everything that we want. I want to talk to you about. Uh, yeah, you know the <clears throat> cat loving is just—it's a recent addition. I mean, um, so uh, but it flows off the off your tongue, okay? You know, I always know when I'm in trouble when somebody like can't quite like gender quit. Like I did a festival where the person introduced me as uh, Kelly Dunham is everyone's favorite ex nun gender quit gender what <laughs> you know like oh. I'm like oh shit this isn't gonna go well. <laughs> I love you. Like, did no one look anything up before this? <laughs> Right. Or they just think it's so weird. You know, like that same person was like, yeah, just to prove we welcome everyone in the festival. And, you know, like I I came on and said I was part elephant or something. You know. <laughs> so you have a new album out uh, called Not the Gym Teacher. And uh, oh, tell me about like, it. It's it's stand up, but storytelling. Yeah. Like, am I am I picking that up right? Right. Well, you know, <clears throat> I was actually just thinking about this while, while I was in the bathroom, actually, right before we started talking about, um, you know, for a while I've been saying, like, it's stand-up comedy for people who don't like comedy. Um, but uh-huh. I was like, but wait, that kind of, in, you know, sometimes you think you hear that and you think, like, oh, shit, is it going to be, like, Im- like not funny improv or, you know, <laughs> like something like that? <laughs> um, it's still funny, you know, and, and uh, I mean, I feel like it's funny, but it also has, like, a lot of heart. And, um I came from like stand up. I started as stand up and then something kind of well, two things happened. The world got a little open more open to hearing queer stories and seeing queer stories as um emotionally universal and storytelling became a thing, you know. Um yeah. and so people understand it more. I mean, of course, it's not like storytelling, you know, it's in our DNA. It's how we escape from predators, you know, but like, hey, there's the saber tooth tiger or whatever. Oh, yeah. And that's the same thing <laughs> right. that, like, devoured my friend. <laughs> Stay right. clear. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, even though, you know, I was talking with a friend about, like, how trauma reaction is actually a narrative arc, you know? Um, so, obviously, we've been doing that forever. But as far as people understanding it as an entertainment, um, we're in a current resurgence. So, that, that really helped because that is much more my style. And when I started, I did, like, kind of more... Um, like, uh, you know, Butch Femme, it's all about who kicks the dog off the bed, you know, like that kind of stuff, um, which was funny when I listened to it. I'm like, oh, that was funny. Um, but I feel like this is much more authentically me. And so therefore it's funnier. Um, mm-hmm. And also like, it has a little narrative arc, you know. So. Yeah, I really appreciate that about queer performance in general. You know, like there's a tendency. How to, I guess I feel like I, I worry I'm going to I'm also queer. But I worry I'm going to say something offensive to queer people, which I guess is weird. But like there's there's sort of like a a tendency to go to the same kind of tropes about like uh, just like gay sort of cliches. And one of the things that I appreciate about the way your things, your work folds it all together, you know, like it's about you as a person, not just making a joke about what people think about gay people. Did that make any sense? No, I I understand. I mean, a lot, certainly a lot of my comedy is kind of like, um, you know, like I always say, like 
kind of people standing on the street corner with a clipboard saying, uh, I'd like to give you some unsolicited advice about your gender. You know, like uh, we've taken a poll here on the Amtrak chain <laughs> or wherever. Um, so a lot of it's about that, you know, which I think is just like that's also like if you're if you walk into some place where people don't know you at all, that's where you have to start because that's what they're thinking about. You know, they're like, does she know she looks like a 12 year old boy? Like, what gender is that person? You know? Yeah. Um, one time I got booked into it was a sense it was a it was ostensibly in the bay area but it was actually in um uh like maybe palo alto or something like that uh -huh. and so it was all stanford frat it was like performing at a frat party um and oh I was wow like, oh wow this was wow and this was <laughs> a decade ago and i was like well i'm here now i'm gonna perform i mean whatever i want to get paid right and um what I did the whole time was just try and get that, like, just fuck with whether or not they knew what gender I was and, like, you know, talk about things that I thought would make them think I was male and then female, you know. So so I certainly have a substantial amount of comedy about that because the, you need that in your backpack for when you're like, oh, shit, that, that this is where I'm performing? Okay. Um, <laughs> right. If I was better with details. I wouldn't need that as much and I wouldn't get <laughs> at frat parties. But say that as it may. Um but also like to kind of have more, you know, like kind of talk about these experiences that are, um, I don't want to say they're universal because I do think, you know, I don't feel like, Oh, queers, we're just like everyone else. I'm like, yeah, that's not really true. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there is some emotional universality to, um, you know, like for example, to loss. So, um, talking about kind of those universal things is, or things that are, emotionally universal is is interesting to me yeah so i've gathered um from my reading about you and the bits of your comedy i heard that um i, I just called it comedy so i'm like wait it's not comedy it's storytelling it's funny storytelling that's what i'm gonna call it but you've gone through some significant losses and that finds its way into your work too yeah yeah so uh i lost a partner in 2007 um, and then I said, oh, I'm never going to love again. Um, and then I fell in love a few years later with somebody who uh, um, was very, you know, or I was I would never love somebody like Heather again. And then I fell in love with somebody um, very unlike Heather, um, like three, four years later. And then um, after we'd been together about two years, uh, she developed uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma and then died from a reaction to the chemo, actually, not even from the cancer. But oh, um wow. Yeah. So it was like basically two partners in, in, in a five year span. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so there was like no other choice than to make comedy about it. I mean, I guess I could have stopped comedy, but like it was such a big part of my life for so long. Um, and also like, because people are so uncomfortable with grief, I really felt like I felt so bad for people in my like grief support groups that didn't have stand up comedy, you know, so they didn't have those skills because the thing is we're so unaccustomed to talking about grief in our culture that, um, that you really need to be very adept, um, verbally if you're going to get through conversations, right? Like there's mm -hmm. conversations where it's like, Kelly, why did you move from Portland? Well, the only answer that makes sense is my partner died and I didn't want to stay there. Right. That's the only answer that makes sense. But if you tell that to somebody and you're just like, Oh, I don't need your like sympathy or anything. I just need to get to the next point in the conversation. <laughs> it does take a, so you got to talk fast and you have to know what to say to make the person feel okay about not saying like, Oh, I'm so sorry or whatever, you know? Um, 
and especially with two partners, like if you want anyone, well, first of all, like, you know, people just did like, um, I have a friend, um, one friend who is a, well, there's lots of gay men, of course, who lost original partners during the first years of the, of the HIV AIDS crisis and then lost like a partner actually usually to, um, in reaction to like, you know, like liver cancer from meds or whatever. Um, so, but as far as like a, um, somebody who's lost kind of like two right in a row in quick succession like that, um, I have a friend and we call ourselves second helping, you know, and, uh, huh. she said, you know, I was just so impressed with any of my friends who could think of anything to say to me. Um, and that actually helped me let my friends off the hook about that, that they're like, what the hell are they going to say? That's going to make it better. Nobody's going to say anything that makes it better. You know, once in a while I have to say people can make it worse, but, um, you know, like certain kinds of jokes and like, oh, I'm not going to stand next to you in a lightning storm from somebody I don't know well. Um, although if somebody I know well says that to me, that like makes me laugh really hard, you know? So. Yeah, because, you know, they have some history with that person, right? Right, right. And they understand like that it was devastating and it's not really something to joke about, except for it is, you know? <laughs> so uh, Yeah. The th- it's There are a couple things about grief while you were talking that sort of like rung, rung a bell for me. I guess one of them is... Um, when I lost my mom, I guess, oh, I don't even know what year, this is an interesting thing about grief. I'm like, oh God, I haven't been keeping track of that year anymore. But mm. I, it, it made a transition in my life in, and directed me more toward performing my own work and my own storytelling and that sort of thing. And when you said, you know, um, you didn't know, you said, you sort of said, well, I could have quit comedy. Oh, you were lucky you had comedy. Um, but, and you could have quit. Like, was that... I don't know. It, did that feel like an actual decision for you at some point, or or, or did you decide? Uh, well, maybe I'll just leave it at that. Like, what was that little bit like for you? Um, like like whether I would quit comedy. Yeah, like going through the loss. Like, uh, did it, it feels like for me there was a point when I lost my mom that I thought like part like there was a part of me that was like, uh, like wanted to just stop like everything, and but then it was like or. Or I could like dig in to being alive and like keep moving. Mm-hmm. Is that does that register with you at all? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Um, <clears throat> after Heather died, um, I'm trying to think of how long it was in between the time I performed. Um, it was actually a little bit more difficult for Heather than for Cheryl. Heather was 2007 and Cheryl was 2011, partly because. When Heather died, I'd only been performing maybe six years, right? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really, you know, stand-up comedy, you have to be terrible at it for such a long time. Uh, <laughs> oh, so no. I didn't really have the skills. I started writing about it. And I didn't really have the skills to, I had the skills to write about it. But I did not have the skills to perform flawlessly in a way that would enable people to laugh at it, right? Because you have to go in, it has to be written perfectly, and you have to be perfectly comfortable with it on stage, and you have to be ready to take care of the audience, mm-hmm. right? So those three things, and I look at some of the, I watch some of the video, I recorded a CD. So Heather died in February 2007, and I recorded a CD, it's probably during the summer of 2000. It was early 2008, probably February 2008. So, you know, it was like 10 months in between. But, you know, that's going from zero to record, you know, developing a whole hour of material. 
And I, when I watched the videos from that recording show, I thought I was completely confident, but now I look back and I see like, oh, there was areas where I was tentative with that. And partly I was tentative because I didn't know how the crowd was going to react. And now, you know, it's been another decade and uh, I've become much more confident, more skilled. And also when people come to a Kelly Dunham show now, they don't think they're just going to hear about like rabbits and puppies. You know, they know they're going to hear death. Like I'm going to bring it up at some point. So that way I feel more like I'm not just surprising them with like oh we just came for a night of stand-up comedy and then there's you know Uh, what i mean yeah Um, and i think if i'm doing a five minute set on somebody else's you know show that's just like uh you know for i don't know for valentine's day or something you know obviously that wouldn't be what i would talk about but if somebody's coming to hear an hour of me they know you know they know what me is now um yeah and also i've become more more comfortable i don't know if you know um you know the podcast by the book you know that podcast no i don't um Kristen Miser, who is uh, a Midwestern person like myself, much like myself. Well, I am a Midwestern person. She's from that podcast. And she came to a show where I was telling the second helping story. Um, And she came up to me later and she was like, I have never like cry laughed that hard. She was like, I I was like cry laughing so hard. I almost fell over. And um, I don't know, there was something that was like so touching about that to me that she was willing to admit that. And then I was like, you know what? I'm okay with people cry laughing. Cry laughing is an okay response to to my comedy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The the other thing about grief and performance and all that kind of stuff kind of connected with me about the way communicating with people about it, you have to kind of take care of them too. Like, like you take care of an audience. It's sort of like when I felt like, when communicating with just other people about uh, losing my mom or other other losses I've had, there's that sense of like oh, I gotta like I gotta keep the conversation going. Like I remember sitting at a table when like with some friends soon after my mom died, and someone said, "Oh, they were talking about Mother's Day," and like, "Oh, I gotta go visit my mom." Blah blah. And all of a sudden, everyone realized at the same time oh shit, Michael just lost his mom. And there was that weird hush on the table. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. oh fuck, I got to fix this. Like, so it's interesting to like sort of think of it in terms of like from a comedy perspective, talking about grief. And I don't know if that's anything more than just an observation. No, but. I mean, it's, you know, what I tell people all the time is like, you know, I do feel like <clears throat> because there's like two partners and, um, you know, I would say it's a little bit like I'm, auditing old age, you know, because of two Uh, dead partners and like five knee replacements and, you know, um, and so I'm often the person when somebody, not so much when somebody loses somebody close to them, but when somebody like person B, when they have a very good friend, person A who loses somebody and then person B calls me, right. Um, because they're worried about their friend and they don't know what to do. And I said, well, like one of the biggest things is just, and, um, my friend Stacy Bias, who did, I don't know if you've seen the illustration for, for, uh, not the gym teacher. She did that. She's a very talented illustrator and um, graphic novelist. Um, and she, after Heather died, she came and just stayed with me for six weeks. Uh, and she actually put a diet Mountain Dew like outside. I wasn't leaving the house at all. She put like a diet Mountain Dew outside the house. So I would have to go get it. It's hilarious. But anyway, <laughs> um, she said to me, she's like, your job, your job right now is just to breathe in and out and be sad. That is your job. Um, that is not at all what our culture says a grieving person's job is. Right. Um, 
like my friend uh, Gloria Casares, who passed away, she was like the head queer of Philadelphia, right? Like she <laughs> mayor's LGBT liaison. And when she died, um, her, you know, the mayor not only spoke at her funeral, but sobbed at her funeral. You know what I mean? Like it was like this big, very big public thing. And when I was hugging her widow as we walked out, who I've known for a very long time, I was like, isn't this fun to share the hardest day of your life with 10,000 people? You know, uh, it's, a, it's a strange, it's a strange, um, like we're often the grieving is set up as the, um, as the host of a funeral, you know, uh, like my mom, when my stepdad died, she was so happy with herself that she, a, she didn't cry at his funeral. She's like, Oh, he would have liked that. He was a retired army girl. And B, um, that she wrote thank you notes to every single person who came to the show or not wow. show funeral. funeral. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's a very different way of now. I know it's like a huge privilege is, I mean, it was also Stacy was the reason I had somebody around me who was like, okay, we're just going to take care of the details here. Um, and I was freelancing then. So, and I was okay with money for the moment. So I didn't have to go right back to work or whatever. And, um, I mean, and that was also because people helped me. Uh, so one of the things is people feel like they have to go back to their life. And sometimes going back to your life, having some rhythm can be helpful. But also, like, there is this, yeah, we, we expect people to do a lot around death. But the thing about it is, and I always tell people, like, you've got to, one of the things to do, like, if somebody, the first thing I say is, if somebody, like, just gets a diagnosis or or just... Don't say, do not say under any circumstances, do not say, is there anything I could do? Because that puts the burden on the other person, the person who just has a diagnosis or just lost their partner, to think of something. Think of things that you could do that could be helpful and say, select one of these if these would be helpful mm. or none of them. And I will check back in, in a day or a week or six weeks or six months, you know, and to also say this offer does not expire. I learned that from a friend and that is really helpful because people forget after a while. So, um, you know, and the thing is if you don't like people really want to do something for people when they're just diagnosed or, or, uh, somebody dies close to them. But sometimes we feel like, Oh, well this person just needs their privacy, you know? Um, and, that, and that's a little bit of a dance because sometimes I have to say there were some people I didn't want to fucking see, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, that's, you know, a little bit of a dance. I definitely think, like, in terms of caregiving and stuff, you know, one of the things I said to Cheryl, who was like, you know, if I, so she was diagnosed. And then she said, when she, we went to the oncologist and I said, okay, we got to start an email listserv um, because that's what Heather had done. She had this list of the troopers and everyone was helping her out. And Cheryl's like, wow, how, you sure do know a lot about this. And I was like, yes, I do. And then mm. she said, you know, if I was doing this alone, it would just be me. I wouldn't have all these people involved. And I was like, well, you're not doing it alone. So. Um, but I said, like, you have to give people specific things to do or, and I remember I just trailed off and then somebody had hand knitted Cheryl socks for no real reason, except for she had cancer. Right. And she's like, or people keep giving you hand knitted socks. And I was like, exactly. Tell people uh -huh. what you need or your house will be filled with hand knitted socks. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's, um, uh, I, I love this kind of conversation because like, as you mentioned, it's not something people are used to just diving in and talking about, you know, like talking about how to deal with grief, what to do. Um, yeah, I love it. Um, I want to talk a little bit too about you being a nun, a former nun. <laughs> <laughs> Can we dive into that a little bit? 
Uh, sure. What's your specific question? Um, what, how did you become a nun? And then why did you stop being a nun? Oh, okay. Um, so I was actually raised evangelical Christian, which is a whole, like, sometimes you don't really have time to tell that whole part of the story. People think, oh, you grew up Catholic. Nope. Didn't had to convert to uh, Catholicism, which, uh, you know, sometimes people are like, wait, nobody ever does that. Like, it's a little bit of a trick. (laughs) They have to check out the instruction manual. But, um, yeah, so I was living in Haiti. Well, for I was a, in Bible college, and I was not a good fit for Bible college. Huh. Um, uh, you know, I was like, what is a baby dyke like you doing in a place like this? Although I didn't know that was the problem, but that was the problem. Um, so I dropped out of Bible college, and I was kind of trying to figure out what my next step was. Um, and I had a friend of a friend who said, hey, you know, um, I have this uh, guy I know who knows about this school it was very convoluted, um, where they need some like, school for kids with disabilities in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and they need somebody to run just recreation for the kids in the afternoon. And, um, you don't need any special skills. And I was like, Oh, that's me. I don't have any special. <laughs> skills. Um, so I saved up money from a summer camp job. Uh, and I went and I was volunteering at the school, but the school was in like this, uh, it was the year between, um, the last of IA, uh, baby dot getting kicked out and Aristide's election. And so it was like, you know, continual cuckoo, cuckoo, you know, like just a lot of political problems. And so the school was less than a block away from the National Palace. And so this bomb like went off in the neighborhood. And so they sent all the kids back. It was a boarding school and um, all the kids back to the provinces where they would be, you know, sensibly safer. And so I'm just kind of at this school with like, mm, OK, I'm just, is there someplace to be helpful? And so, and somebody invited me to the Missionaries of Charity, to the a home, they call it the Home for the Dying, the morbid name for a hospice. But, um, and so, I, so then I started volunteering them and I met them and they were kind of like everything that I saw in Haiti that I, you know, so many people like had just like shit on Haiti was such terrible colonialism. But the Missionaries of Charity, even though they wouldn't call it this necessarily, it was much more of a mutual aid thing. Right. So, um, you know, much less like much more kind of like grassroots and not, not done in a way that, um, you know, it was like a collaborative with people who live, who, you know, they were Haitian sisters and it was more collaborative, you know? Um, and they just lived this beautiful life, all these women together, um, and live really simply. And, you know, when we talk about like being green, the missionaries of charity, are like ultimately green, right? Like they only have two sets of clothes and they just wash one and wear one and you know like they're not using they don't have any like modern conveniences of any kind or yeah. use fans or you know what i mean like so that really like very you know it it um it spoke to me um so i had to convert to catholicism but the thing is by the time i joined which i'd been a full-time volunteer with them for almost five years by the time i joined the thing is i knew about their work but i don't I hadn't really experienced kind of the nun parts. Um, and they did try and warn me, um, but I was sure this is what I was supposed to do. So, you know, when somebody, you know, uh, especially at that, me at that age, I don't know about other people at that age, like there was no warning me, you know? <laughs> so, uh, it was just a back fit in terms of, they have a very, very, um, 
literal interpretation of obedience, you know, like just whatever, you know, the voice of your mistress is the voice of God in all things but sin. So whatever stupid shit they told you to do, you would just have to do, right? Like we come home from working in the soup kitchen all day and they'd say, today, sisters, because we love Jesus, we're going to move the dorm into the dining room and the dining room to the dorm. So you were just supposed to say, yeah, sister, thank you, sister. And then, you know, even if I managed the right reply, they said that I would walk like my shoulders were angry, you know. So uh, you're supposed to, the pre-aspirancy is supposed to be a month, but it took me a year and a half to get through it, which is like failing preschool 18 times. Um, <laughs> Beautiful. And it said that I had too much self-esteem. Um, so uh, how I ended up leaving was we didn't use uh, – disposable like you know menstrual products we just use like kind of a, a diaper while wadded up and that you know that was something that was a little bit difficult we hand washed it it was just a pain in the butt um yeah. especially when we were already exhausted and so we were cleaning the women's shelter one day and there was a tampon on top of the dresser and i was like i just like oh i think i'll borrow that and then i like put it in my pocket and i was walking away and i was like no i didn't borrow that i'm not giving it back i just stole a tampon from a homeless woman and I was like, I don't really know who I want to be, but I can tell you who I don't want to be. And that is a person who steals a tampon from a homeless woman. Holy shit. Yeah. And that was kind of the moment where I was like, okay, this process is not making me holy. You know, like this is, you know, and I think it also speaks to, you know, um, the person who started the Catholic worker. He said that one of our charges in life is to be, uh, make it a little easier for people to be good. You know, I never really understood that until I'd been with the missionaries of charity and saw like a situation where it actually became very hard to actually be your best self, you know? Um, and I th even think of that in terms of like employment now, um, like the people I supervise, uh, at my job, like, am I making an environment where it is easy for them to be their best self, you know? So anyway, it was not all that to say it was not bringing out the best self in me. I can tell you that. And so I was like, oh, well, what do you guys think? Should I, uh, is this working out? Um, and they were like, let us think about that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> they got there quick. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, yeah, they were ready for me to go. Very ready. They were trying to give me a chance, but I was driving them crazy, you know? Yeah. That's like, I'm having a, like a mind blown experience thinking about your moment of clarity about that, you know, like that's something like keeping you know, I spend a lot of time, and I think most humans do, of thinking, is this the right thing? Should I be doing this? Is this the right choice? Mm. And, like, when you have a moment like that, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, definitely don't want to be a person who steals a tampon from a homeless woman. <laughs> right, right. And this, I made that decision because of this. Great. This doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, those are kind of interesting. Like, is this is this choice I've made inspiring me to be what I perceive as a good person, yes or no. Wow, right. I need simplicity like that. Um, <laughs> Peter Maurin, is that his name? From Yes, yes. I yeah. just Googled it. Yeah, thank you. Um, I love that, I don't know whether it's because of the history of how I learned about the Catholic worker movement, but I feel really happy with that education that Dorothy Day is the name I think of, and I didn't even know there was a male person involved. So right, yay, right, yeah. yay that yeah. happening. <laughs> Um, there's one last thing I want to ask you about, and I don't want to give away um, something that uh, it's from one of your stories on the album, but it's really uh, interesting to me. You talk about hopefulness. Um, and uh, I, I, do you know the part of the of the album I'm talking about? 
of a deep biological optimism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know why I feel like I guess I'm very respectful from other people about other people's work, and I would love for you to reveal whatever that you're interested in. But I loved that that thought. Like you, you. Well, maybe I will say this part. What? Um, why do you approach life with the same hopefulness as a mediocre cisgendered heterosexual white man? <laughs> Considering like the your experiences and who you are in our society, I, I just thought it was really it's interesting that the answer to that. Can you talk about it some? Right. I mean, and the answer. I mean, this is not how it's said in the CD, but it's basically like deep biological optimism, right? And uh, the idea that you know, as my therapist describes it. Um, you know, some people think the glass is half full. Some people think the glass is half empty. But you're more like, um, hey, thanks for this broken glass. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's build it. Let's use it to dig a, you know, I don't know, the foundation for a building. I'll hold the shark part, you know. I mean, it's one of those things where I can't separate it from who I am. And now that I understand that it's a thing, because it's it's very good. So how this happens, the part that's kind of maybe more relatable is that everything is a good memory for me. Right. Um, so like, for example, uh, I was talking about taking a friend whitewater rafting, well, actually taking somebody on a date, whitewater rafting, which is a terrible idea, like kind of in this place <laughs> outside uh, Philadelphia. And, um, I'm describing it. And then um, a friend is describing it and we're like, Oh, this can't possibly be the same place because like, they're like, yeah, there was a bunch of mud and then like all the inner tubes were broken down. And then we got to the end of like comparing and contrasting that we couldn't be possibly be talking about the same place. And then we Googled it and realized we were talking about the same place. Right. Yeah. Just forgotten all the stuff about how terrible it was and only remembered the good parts. Um, which that is really, really good for mental health because that is, it's a good memory for me, but it's terrible for decision making, right? Yes. <laughs> like, so it means I have to go back there again. And I, um, I have somebody who I'm not as close with, who was my best friend for a long time, who essentially she felt like her job in life was to remind me of like, no, Kelly, that was a terrible gig last year, too. You know, like there's this uh, queer resort, which is like it's really lovely and they're very nice to you when you perform there, this place in Pennsylvania. But the show starts at 11 p.m. and nobody's driving home, so they are so drunk. Um, <laughs> the second time I performed there, I was like, I can't believe how drunk everyone was. That was so weird. And my friend was like, no, that was exactly what you reported last time. Like, you just totally forgot. So it's very good for mental health, but bad for decision-making, you know? And it is like some part, it's just literally just, I feel like, I mean, I'm not that much of a biolog biological essentialist in general, but um, that just seems something... Even some, you know, I had these like five, like I had a knee replacement and then um, it became infected. So I've had five different surgeries to try and correct it. And um, I saw the person who was like my home infusion nurse after the first surgery I had. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was like, yeah, you were so nice to me. And she was like, that's what you took out of that situation that you remember me as being nice to you because you were like so completely miserable. And I was like, Oh no, I just remember you being nice. To me. <laughs> that is like that. I, I feel like I have like some level of that same type of perception. Like I focus on the good to a <laughs> fault, I guess like it's that I love having that moment of like, Oh, maybe I'm not just like completely masochistic. Maybe 
I have like a more of a selective memory and think of positive things. That makes it feel better anyway. Right, right. And also the other thing is you don't have to. We have a community, right? So like I've even noticed it with work sometimes. Like I will remember something, you know, like something we do every year at work that doesn't work out, you know. Um, or in the case of like – I'll tell the story in a very short way, but basically I did not notice a situation was as bad as it was, but I had a friend who was like, no, Kelly, that situation is bad. And I trusted them and we got out of the situation. Um, you know, like a, a work, uh, a work situation. And I was like, okay, well I might not, and I don't have to feel ashamed of not always being good at assessing that if I trust the people in my life to give me that feedback, you know? Yeah. Um, and that it's not necessarily, you know, because it's both helpful and unhelpful, you know, um, like most things, you know, like yeah. asking a job search or, you know, job interview, what's your worst characteristic? I mean, and then what's your best characteristic? It's always the same damn characteristic. It's the same thing every time. <laughs> so, uh, oh, my God, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining me before we wrap this up and go on to our special bonus podcast that patrons can hear at patreon.com slash Michael Heron. Will you let us know where we can find your album, where we can find you online, all that good stuff? Um, well, it is available everywhere. Comedy is sold, streamed or given away. Um, so it's not the gym teacher. Uh, it's available on, you know, Spotify, uh, YouTube, um, and you know, Apple, um, Apple music and whatever new thing has been created in the 10 days <laughs> between the time we record this, um, right. it was streaming directly to your ear. Uh, so it's available all those different ways. Oh, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. This is so much fun for me.
That was The Empty Sky from Ryan Rummery. It's a series of songs that he's doing um, every week. He's working while in isolation and quarantine like the rest of us. He's been working on new tracks each week and releasing them on Fridays. This was the most recent one. It's called The Empty Sky. You can track it down at bandcamp.com, ryanrummery.bandcamp.com, or just go to mikeypod.com. I'll put a link to it. Ryan has been on the podcast before, and he and I have played music live together, and he played the percussion on my track, um, Invocation, from my first album, tentative armor all of that stuff you can find on spotify and apple music and all that kind of thing and also on my band camp page i always put links to that stuff on the show notes to the podcast um wow it was interesting how much uh kelly and i talked about grief on this show because i've been thinking about grief in terms of where we're all at right now with the the pandemic etc uh i feel gross about it all right now (laughs) and i can't i can't I kept re-recording this outro because I'm low energy. <laughs> um, and I think that's why, but that's just how it is right now. So, um, okay. Uh, are you doing okay, people who are listening? Let me know, mikeypod at gmail.com. Um, if you want to hear more from the interview with Kelly and I, you can check it out on my Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash Michael Heron. I hope you're doing well. Um, my interview for next week is pretty, cool i'm very excited about it um in preparation for it if you have disney plus there's a short animated film from pixar called float watch that and you'll be ready for our my next episode all right i hope you're doing well and i will talk to you later